This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Professor Andrew Walter. Andrew is an expert in international relations based at the University of Melbourne, and he joined me to talk about the latest in UK politics, including recent developments in Scotland with the shock resignation of long-serving First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. What does this mean for Scotland moving forward and the Scottish independence movement? Then I was joined by Marina Benjamin. Marina is a writer and senior editor at Eon magazine, and she joined me to talk about her latest book in depth. It's called A Little Give, The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women. Marina speaks about her interlinked set of essays and verse, where she examines her own life and the tasks that were once termed women's work. From cooking and cleaning to caring for an ageing relative, Marina talks about this kind of unsung and invisible caring work, its implications for Marina's life, for women's lives, for feminism, and also for men. She talks about how patriarchy suffocates both men and women. And finally, I was joined by musicologist Dr. David Larkin. David is a senior lecturer at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and he joined me to discuss how music can powerfully represent and evoke nature, as well as the sublime. With an upcoming performance by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, David Larkin and I explore in-depth Richard Strauss's An Alpine Symphony. This single-movement epic tone poem is a perfect example of how music can evoke nature. David shares how Strauss depicts a waterfall, a flowery meadow with cows, a sunrise, a thunderstorm, a hiker reaching an alpine summit, and an experience of the sublime, as well as many other things. He uses music as a language to communicate this and evoke emotions in the listener. If you would like to listen to this interview with the music included, please see the link in the podcast description, which will take you to the Triple R website with this particular interview featured, including the music. If you'd like to play along at home and stream the music for yourself, please also see the podcast description for the track list and listen carefully to the interview as I share which tracks we're playing and at which point. Thanks for listening. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show Professor Andrew Walter, who is an expert in international relations based at the Faculty of Arts at University of Melbourne. And he is joining me once again to talk all things UK politics. Gosh, there is so much happening. I know I say that every single time, but it's never an um, understatement. And I don't think we'll get to it all, but we'll do our best to cover what's happened not just in the last week, but in the last couple of months. Um, We did just see last week that First Minister for Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has resigned and it was to many a shock resignation because in January she'd just been saying uh, that actually I have no plans to resign, I've still got plenty left in the tank and, uh, yeah, she honest, basically contradicted uh, what she eventually came out and told us a month later. So we'll start out with that, uh, talking with Andrew. And uh, first of all, welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Amy. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, wonderful to have you back on. And with Nicola Sturgeon, I know that it might be a little bit like Jacinda Ardern in the sense that 
domestically for New Zealand, a lot of New Zealanders didn't like Jacinda Ardern, and I heard a lot about that. Um, but outside of New Zealand, everyone loves Jacinda Ardern. Uh, it seems like it's quite similar with Nicola Sturgeon. Not that there's hatred towards Nicola Sturgeon, but as she said in her resignation speech, you know, the sparkle has worn off a bit for people and it's not the same as it was before. Um, you know, that she's been through quite a lot of challenges, whether they're her fault or not, and that her political standing is not as it was when she started out. Um, she then went on to give a whole range of reasons as to why she was standing down and resigning after so long. But really, it did seem to echo for me the situation with Jacinda because so many people outside of Scotland admire Nicola Sturgeon for her straight talking. She just says her mind. She's very clear in the language that she uses, and that was very helpful during lockdowns in Scotland due to the coronavirus. And I myself used to watch her live streams um, press conferences about lockdowns to kind of see just how you could do it as a politician as opposed to the more verbose Prime Minister we had at the time. So with that in mind, Andrew, could you talk to us about Nicola Sturgeon, the leader, and I guess the response to her resignation? Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot in there, Amy. Um, so Sturgeon, I, I mean, I think is different from Jacinda Ardern in a number of ways, um, uh, despite the, you know, the, the obvious comparisons uh, that you've made. Um, I wouldn't say that Sturgeon is dramatically more popular outside of um, Scotland than she is within. She, she has dominated. She's been absolutely hegemonic in terms of Scottish politics uh, since she um, ascended to the leadership of her party uh, and her nation uh, in 2014. And uh, she's been more popular there and still is than any uh, rival leader uh, south of the border um, or indeed uh, within Scotland. Um, people have struggled, including me, over the past uh, few days uh, to think of other Scottish um, politi senior politicians, at least if you're outside of the country. So everyone certainly knows uh, outside of Scotland, everyone knows uh, Nicola Sturgeon, but she has remained an absolutely dominant figure in, in Scottish politics. You're right that her popularity has somewhat waned um, in recent uh, weeks, um, and that's uh, in large part due to the controversy over the gender ID uh, legislation that she attempted and failed to push through. Um, but, uh, you know, she, in, in a way, she left like uh, Jacinda Ardern on top uh, while she was still dominant, but she leaves an enormous gap. And uh, indeed, there's much criticism within her party, uh, and she has many detractors within um, for not leading, you know, or, or allowing rather, a, you know, a clear succession. Um, and so that, that shock resignation was a deep shock, uh, not only to the um, to the party and its uh, and its immediate challenges, but also to you know questions about whether um, the party has a future without her. Mm. Certainly, I know that a lot of people had been remarking right in the aftermath. Oh gosh, no one can really think of a replacement because there wasn't really that kind of succession type of planning that was at least obvious, that was visible to the public. Perhaps mm. internally it might have been more obvious, but it's not like there's a necessary 
um, instant obvious person to take over, although I did see that there was, in fact, a female politician who was put forward. So it's not um, necessarily the case that we'll go from a female to a male, but I'm keen to Mm. know what you think about uh, what people have said about a potential replacement as a Scottish First Minister. Yeah, there are a couple of um, there are a couple of female contenu- contenders, and I, I think the finance minister is it Kate Jacobs um, is often mentioned as the most likely or most most likely plausible front runner. Um, but uh, she's deeply religious. Uh, she opposed uh, the the gender identification law uh, reform um, on religious grounds. Uh, and indeed, a large number of the uh, membership of the Scottish National Party itself did too. And this is where Rishi Sunak felt that he was on fairly firm ground in uh, in blocking that legislation. Um, the problem uh, for that particular candidate, uh, alternative to Nicola Sturgeon, is that the membership of the SNP, although a significant proportion, at least a third, according to the polls, uh, did side uh, with her on the gender ID reform issue. Um, uh, a substantial number of uh, the parties see her as essentially disloyal uh, to Nicola Sturgeon and thus the leadership. The party membership, as with pretty much all political parties, is uh, more gung-ho, um, more, it, it lies to the left of the Scottish uh, electorate generally. Um, so it's more social democratic, it's more nationalist and particularly keen, of course, on finding a way forward on the independence question. And so the fear is, I think, for the supporters uh, of the finance minister that, uh, you know, they may say see her as essentially a disloyal candidate who doesn't deserve to succeed, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. So I think it's a pretty wide open field. Uh, much will depend, of course, over, the, you know, on the next few months, uh, how, you know, those uh, candidates run. Um, Mm. Well, there is, uh, yeah, her name is Kate Forbes and apparently, yeah, she's on maternity leave at the moment. Yes, she is. After having her first child, which might make doing the numbers a little bit harder given that physical presence is also important in politics. Um, yep. But it's it's remarked upon in The Guardian that she speaks Gaelic, which I'm assuming is not mm. the case for everyone. No. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously there are there are other options, including Ang- Angus Robertson, who's the Culture and External Affairs Secretary and former Westminster leader of the SNP, so a very public profile type candidate who's recognisable to many. And uh, there's also, interestingly, another candidate that has come forward as well. I'm trying to find his name because it's just... There we go. Hamza Youssef, who is Scotland's most senior Muslim politician uh, and is currently the health secretary. So there are quite a range of candidates. I've named a few, but there are a few others that people have have raised as well. Um, Do we know when the competition or the, the battle is going to really start... Formally. 
Well, I think um, that's still to be decided, uh, but I imagine soon this is not something they can leave um, hanging uh, for very long. So I, I think the negotiations are still continuing. I've also heard that Hamza Youssef, by the way, is um, uh, by some informed observers, uh, and I wouldn't count myself as a, a Scottish politics expert by any means, but uh, that that he uh, looks like uh, perhaps uh, the most likely candidate to emerge from the pack at the moment, uh, and that that would in many ways be, you know, an alternative um, uh, to the traditional fairly white um, dominance uh, at, at the top of Scottish politics, um, white Christian dominance, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, we'll we'll see. So mm. I, I was going to say that um, Nicola Sturgeon, and, and you saw all of her qualities in her resignation speech. Her, her poise, her charisma, as you said earlier, her choice of words. Uh, she's an absolutely, you know, top-notch politician. Uh, and it's going to be difficult for any of her potential successes to fill that spot um, as effectively as she has. But she's also been effective behind the scenes um, within her party in terms of her ruthless discipline, uh, her unwillingness uh, to Brook uh, or to accept challenges, um, and you know we're seeing the consequences of that now. That having stepped down, there's just an enormous vacuum. There is mm. no one designated successor, um, and uh, that's a real problem for the party. And it's one that other parties, particularly the Labour Party, will try to exploit. Absolutely. Yeah, the language she was using in that speech was very interesting and also quite relatable, I think. Yeah. Um, she said, quote, I'm not expecting violins here, but I am a human being as well as a politician. These jobs are a privilege, but they are also rightly hard. And so that was obviously part of her uh, reason for stepping down was how um, modern politics and the brutality of it takes its toll. Um, she also talked of having to uh, kind of have security around all the time. She couldn't just go out to a cafe with a friend like a normal person. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that she felt she'd sacrificed over the years um, to be able to perform her duties to the best of her ability. And at this point, she decided, actually, I, I can't possibly continue this sacrifice and do the job to the standard that I would expect to do, yeah. which is pretty, I guess, admirable. But do you think there were other reasons why she chose to leave? Yeah, absolutely other reasons. And uh, I think we should rule out one, uh, which has been going around uh, Twitterdom and, and so on in recent days that, you know, just shows that, uh, you know, women maybe aren't up to the job um, and, you know, look to Jacinda Ardern. Um, that you know, that clearly uh, is uh, a deeply problematic argument, but it's one that's popular in some circles. Um, I might call it bollocks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's not that, uh, mm. but there certainly are other factors. And, you know, I think we should applaud uh, both Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon um, for deciding to quit when they don't feel uh, that they have uh, a great deal more to offer or can see an easy way out uh, to the problems of Scotland uh, in uh, Nicola Sturgeon's case. And, you know, I think the simple fact is that she had run out of ideas on how to push forward uh, the 
independence agenda in Scotland. Her desire to achieve um, a, a continuing level of support for Scottish independence of around at least 60% has failed, um, and she had no alternative strategy. Her attempt to use the upcoming British election, probably next year, as a de facto second independence referendum has essentially crashed and burned. Um, and on a whole other range of what you might call domestic issues, uh, Scotland's awful problem of drug deaths. Um, it also has a massive problem in terms of the healthcare system, which is failing, as in England and Wales, um, and her education policy. So you know, the Scottish National Party, like many Scots, want Scotland to be a kind of uh, Denmark or Sweden of the north of uh, Great Britain. Um, they spend a lot of money, um, but they don't have uh, better education and health outcomes uh, than uh, than the rest of the UK. And indeed, they've been slipping um, in mm. the OECD rich country ranks. So uh, things aren't going well on the domestic front. And the whole independence agenda, which was Sturgeon's main focus, um, according to her critics, has essentially meant that she's ignored the domestic reform agenda, which is now seriously lagging. Indeed, there are so many uh, issues that have been current and present for so long, and obviously Scottish independence is definitely right up there, and we'll delve into that a little bit more in a tick. But I did want to just touch on the um, gender recognition reform given that it played such a big role and also given that it seems that it will play an ongoing role because, uh, as we discussed, Hamza Youssef, who is the current frontrunner to replace Nicola Sturgeon, he said that he will pledge to uphold her socially progressive policy agenda and also challenge the UK government's block on mm. their gender recognition bill. Uh, so it doesn't sound like that will, you know, fade away with no. the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon. Um, to give people a sense of the kind of domestic discussion that was going on at the time, uh, in early January, the UK government blocked a Scottish government bill which would introduce a system of self-identification for people who would like to change their legal gender. Um, and there were kind of details in there about um, how much time would need to have passed, uh, et cetera, but essentially the pushback was around, quote, safety issues for women and children. It actually had quite wide support across multiple parties. But there was also another factor domestically that seemed to appear, uh, unfortunately, around the same time as this was all going on, and that was a case, a criminal case, where a convicted double rapist and transgender woman, Isla Bryson, uh, was put into a women's prison and then there was a huge outcry about this and she was moved to a male prison. So this was obviously quite a, a potent, you know, news piece, something that must have galvanised a lot of people in the community and then I guess turbocharged that whole issue, um, some would say unfairly. So I wonder, you know, what do we know, I guess, about the UK government's decision to push back on this and their ability to, because I know many people who aren't familiar with UK politics might be quite shocked that another government could veto hmm. uh, one government's bill and, and law. 
Yeah, well, Nicola Sturgeon herself, uh, when the Scottish uh, secretary in Westminster, London, uh, vetoed uh, that legislation, um, called uh, the Scottish minister uh, out on acting like a governor general, uh, so effectively, um, you know, playing the imperial card uh, against London. That backfired uh, because uh, there were many people in Scotland uh, who largely sided uh, with the Sunak government's decision to block the legislation, um, including, as I said earlier, you know, perhaps a third uh, of SNP voters. Um, it's very unclear, and certainly, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to try to estimate how many people were in Scotland were uh, persuaded to side uh, effectively with London on this question um, as a result of the, the particular case that you, you mentioned, Amy. So I, I just don't know to what extent um, this misjudgment uh, on Nicola Sturgeon's part that she had popular support behind her for this bill, not just support uh, within the SNP itself on the part of, um, you know, more socially progressive uh, liberals within the SNP. But um, there is no doubt, however, that Miss, uh, that, that, um, that Nicola Sturgeon miscalculated um, I think it was probably almost certainly one of the factors uh, that led to her resignation. Um, as someone said uh, last week, um, you know, it's all very well to have a single dominant leader without um, a succession um, uh, plan as long as that dominant leader uh, retains the trust of the party in terms of her continuing ability to feel the pulse of the nation, the Scottish mm -hmm. nation, that is, and to have a strong sense that, you know, when she goes to battle against London, that she can win. In this case, she miscalculated and lost. And I think, um, as well as all of the other domestic issues uh, that I mentioned, this was a serious blow to her self-perception, I guess, as a credible leader, um, but she probably thought she was facing so many battles on so many fronts that she just couldn't go on. Mm. And she did really kind of tie her her reputation to it in a way, just because yeah. of the strong language she was using, especially on Twitter, for example, she had tweeted, this is a full frontal attack on our democratically elected Scottish Parliament and its ability to make its own decisions on devolved matters the government will defend the legislation and stand up for Scotland's parliament. If this Westminster veto succeeds, it will be the first of many. Uh, so she's kind of tying, you know, this issue essentially to the cause of Scottish independence. Well, she was. Um, but, of course, what she's not saying is that, uh, you know, Scotland is not yet obviously an independent nation and mm. and people, particularly in Australia, would, would rightly be puzzled about how Westminster could do this. But the problem lies in devolution itself, which, of course, is only partial. So, uh, health policy um, is uh, is devolved to Scotland, um, and so the Parliament in Holyrood has jurisdiction over health policy. Um, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon essentially was framing this policy in in health policy terms, but uh, equality policy. And I think uh, there's the Equality Act of 2010 uh, remains a matter for the union, and thus uh, for the Westminster Parliament in London. And 
so Sunak uh, and his government is essentially, are essentially arguing uh, that this has implications for gender equality and thus falls firmly under uh, the jurisdiction of Westminster. And so it was entirely le legitimate for uh, the Scottish minister to veto this. So this is a, a problem of a, a bill essentially that um, had multiple dimensions and clearly was part health policy and part broader policy um, relating to the equal treatment of citizens um, and, and thus uh, had uh, mixed jurisdiction between Holyrood and Westminster. And so this sort of thing is inevitable. And so so I think, um, you know, again, it's uh, it's an attempt on the part of people like Sturgeon to, to use London and, uh, you know, the, the sort of Tory imperialism of the past as, as a means of framing an issue in a way that suits them. But uh, the fact is that, you know, in legal terms, London, it seems, did have some jurisdiction uh, over the, this issue. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was used politically. And um, I guess if we think then about Scottish independence and the likelihood of this being championed by anyone, uh, I mean, that that's kind of the whole point of the SNP in a way is, you know, you know Scotland first. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, I've seen some commentary of people saying, well, actually, now that Nicola Sturgeon is gone, maybe there's more chance for Scottish independence. Because she was so stuck in the way that she was approaching the issue, maybe there's a more roundabout way of ad advancing Scottish independence. I'm not sure just how much, you know, weight to give that argument. But, you know, have you seen discussions around Scottish independence and its chances now um, since her resignation? I think there's uh, a lot of hope uh, in that argument more than factual reality. Mm. I think uh, I think the fact is that the the SNP and their recent cancellation of their up upcoming conference, which was to you know set out a strategy uh, to um, yeah, as I said earlier to frame uh, the upcoming British election as a second de facto referendum on Scottish independence, uh, is just an indication that no one knows. Um, Westminster has blocked uh, a second referendum under Boris Johnson's government, and it has has the legal right to do so. Uh, and uh, the Supreme Court recently confirmed that right. So um, I think the only way that, in a sense, Westminster, uh, any government in Westminster, be it Conservative, Labour or some coalition government, could be forced into a second refer referendum um, in Scotland at some time in what I think now must be the distant future will be when there is a clear and sustained majority of Scots in favour of uh, independence. And uh, again, the failing of Nicola Sturgeon's strategy since 2014 has been to build that um, clear and sustained majority in favour of independence. Independence, support for independence in the polls has been consistently hovering at around 50% with a few ups and downs, but that's only about 5% more uh, than the 45% uh, back uh, back uh, some years now uh, in uh, that voted 
voted for independence. So the referendum failed. Uh, the first referendum failed, 45 to 55% clear majority in favour of remaining in the UK. And, uh, you know, it's not obvious that, that Westminster here is on weak political ground in continuing to refuse a future uh, referendum. So I don't think there's any roundabout way. The, round, the roundabout way was, uh, you know, to, to frame uh, the next Westminster election as a, as a de facto uh, referendum, but that has that's clearly backfired and failed. It's alienated a lot of Scots uh, who want to be talking about, you know, bread and butter politics, healthcare, mm. education, and other things. This is a massive opportunity above all for the Labour Party uh, to move into that space. Yes, well, that was what I was about to ask because <laughs> we have seen comments uh, of, about the Labor Party really saying they're very galvanised by this change because mm. they felt like they weren't making any headway uh, in Scottish politics under Nicola Sturgeon. Now that there will be a shift, um, they're hoping for a, a shift for them in their political fortunes. And obviously those bread and butter issues are certainly ones that Labor feel more at home in and around and of crisis uh, crises around cost of living is such a big issue in the UK at the moment. Do you think there is any kind of chance for Keir Starmer to gain ground uh, at the next election in Scotland? Well, I think he will, um, and clearly also the you know the Scottish Labour Party, um, also also led by um, uh, an. Uh, 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 an Indian, uh, British Indian national, um, is uh, is poised, I think, to gain a lot of seats. Um, quite how many, though, is unclear. Um, they're aiming at something, or they, th at least I've heard that they believe they can gain something like 15 to 20 seats. They used to have 50. Uh, Labour used to be absolutely dominant, uh, hegemonic in Scotland, and that was historically one of the key routes uh, to winning in Westminster. Um, and, you know, you must remember uh, many of the listeners will remember famous uh, British Labour but also Scottish politicians, Gordon Brown, uh, Tony Blair was part Scottish, um, and so on. Um, so a number – so uh, the plausible pathway to victory in Westminster has long been seen as uh, as needing to, to go through Scotland uh, for Labour. So there's a lot of hope on that side too uh, that um, the SNP's uh, electoral support could potentially collapse if the domestic reform agenda um, that it pledged it would uh, pursue is seen to have failed. Um, I don't think we're there yet by any means uh, and a year or so may not be sufficient time for Labour uh, to, you know, to achieve an overwhelming electoral victory uh, in Scotland. And there are many, you know, there's a fired up base uh, of the SNP that will resist that, of course. But Labour in many ways uh, in the UK is now the clear unionist party. The Conservatives benefited from Labour's collapse um, and the SNP's victory um, in Scotland in, mm. in electoral terms. Labour lost. So, um, the, so the, the, the Tories don't really have any plausible um, electoral chances um, in, in Scotland, uh, but Labour does. Um, the question is, so Labour just needs to play it very carefully on the question of independence. It doesn't seem, it doesn't, doesn't uh, want to be seen to be treading on uh, the, the 
you know, the dreams of the pro-independence movement. Uh, so it needs to keep that open. Um, it's a little like, you know, Labour's dance around the, you know, the, the Brexit question and the question mm. of whether eventually Labour would take uh, the UK back into the European Union, which of course has been a massive issue in Scotland itself. But but Labour, you know, has some very tricky politically uh, political territory to tread here. Um, I suspect that something like 15 or 20 seats gained in Scotland is is possible that that would you know probably be at the upper end yeah well i can't wait to find out i know we've been talking about the prospect of this election for quite a while now given all the scandals that have happened um i have i am talking to professor andrew walter and we're talking uk politics andrew let's jump to the uk as in britain uh and the british parliament at the moment there are a lot of things going on, especially scandal-wise, and I guess uh, it's not looking that great. doesn't reflect very well on Rishi Sunak, <laughs> the, the newish British Prime Minister. Uh, one example of that being Iraqi-born British politician Nadim Sahawi, who was Minister for Intergovernmental Relations and Minister for Equalities, and he was also uh, Conservative Chair of the Conservative Party, uh, maybe that's why it took so long for him to resign. Um, but we did eventually see his resignation in January after there were talks about questionable um, tax practices and uh, an investigation into his tax practices. And I wonder, you know, could you take us through some of the um, issues and scandals and crises that currently face Rishi Sunak. And we can start with the front bench, if you like, and um, some of the ministerial <laughs> appointments, which are seemingly ongoingly questionable. Yeah. Well, that's right. He recently had a reshuffle, a uh, cabinet reshuffle, uh, widely criticised for being unnecessary and poorly timed. Uh, you're right that Zahiri had to resign um, uh, because of his uh, tax scandal. Uh, somehow he managed to overlook the fact that he had underpaid uh, up to three million pounds or so in in taxes. Uh, a minor uh, That's oversight, an easy mistake to make, yeah. uh, according to his supporters, but uh, they sound like pretty big numbers uh, to most Brits who are struggling. Um, so uh, you know, and again, an indication of just how wealthy uh, some of the British cabinet uh, is, including some of the South Asian. Uh, British politicians who've risen to prominence uh, in recent years, above all uh, Rishi Sunak, of course. Um, but um, yeah, he, he is not the only problem. And what this indicated was uh, Rishi Sunak's weakness, his inability uh, decisively uh, to get ahead of this problem um, by sacking um, his uh, his Conservative Party chair quickly when the scandal emerged. His resignation or sacking was inevitable. Um, the fact that it just took so long to happen was an indication of Sunak's weakness uh, internally within the party. This is all a legacy of, um, I mean, I, I, tempted as I am to blame it on people like Boris Johnson, this is a legacy really of the, the Conservatives just having been in power uh, since 2010. They're out of ideas, they're exhausted, uh, 
yeah, considerable corruption. They're lagging in the polls. They're lagging Labour in the polls uh, by 20 to 25 percent um, in recent months. Uh, they are a party in a deep, deep mess, and it's very difficult to see how they will get out of it. And uh, he's not the only problem. Uh, we've got Dominic Raab as well. We've got Boris Johnson, um, and there's a parliamentary inquiry into Partygate uh, that will begin uh, fairly soon. Uh, but Dominic Raab's uh, internal in investigation for bullying is ongoing and is likely again, I think, to lead to a resignation. Um, and this is all going to reinforce the view that the Conservatives are dysfunctional, um, long overdue for being out of office, and, uh, you know, all good news for Keir Starmer again, who may be a bit boring, but, you know, steady hand, uh, not corrupt, and so on. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's interesting, because obviously not everyone thinks Keir Starmer is the most ideal candidate. No. However, <laughs> it's almost like... Um, what is it, a Bradbury scenario where everyone else is collapsing and the, he looks like the best guy for the job in the end? Yeah, well, steady and boring is starting to look pretty attractive yeah. uh, to many people. Of course, Rishi Sunak um, himself, in many ways, has has tried to fill that, uh, you know, that mantle. And you know, I'm the pragmatic politician. I'm not. I'm not an ideologue. I'm not an ideologue. Um, I am a pro-Brexiteer, and I will see that agenda through, uh, but essentially I'm here to fix things. Um, and the problem for Rishi Sunak is that he is increasingly seen as too weak to do that. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly not looking great. Um, mm. Let's also talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is yes. um, obviously just something that hasn't really been resolved since the very beginning of this whole saga with Brexit and the border and how it's all going to work. And we've seen just in the last few hours that uh, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, says there will be further talks with the EU in coming days about the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, suggesting that, you know, an agreement hasn't yet been reached, but maybe, maybe something will happen. Um, for those who aren't that familiar with the Northern Ireland Protocol and where we're at with it and why it's such a sticking point, would you mind giving us, I guess, the Cliff Notes version uh, of where we're up to with that particularly sticky issue? So in the trade and cooperation agreement um, uh, between Britain and the European Union that was signed under, by Boris Johnson um, in 2019, um, there was an agreement uh, to allow Northern Ireland, like the Republic of Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland obviously part of the UK, to remain within the European single market. This inevitably created uh, some kind of border with the rest of the UK uh, or implied some kind of border, some kind of economic border with the rest of the UK because of the fear uh, that if there wasn't uh, such an economic regulatory border with the rest of the UK, uh, then the integrity of uh, the European single market um, would be undermined. So that was the European uh, problem uh, that they had essentially with Brexit um, and with British demands for some kind of special status uh, for Northern Ireland, ensuring that it remained an integral part of the UK economically and politically. So um, 
so the problem was always going to be, uh, or the negotiations were always going to be over what kind of border um, uh, would uh, prevail between uh, the UK uh, mainland uh, and uh, Northern Ireland. And the result was a series of regulations uh, that essentially meant uh, goods in particular being checked um, as they crossed uh, between uh, the mainland UK and, and Ireland, uh, so effectively an economic uh, customs border. And that has been anathema uh, to the DUP, uh, the Democratic Unionist pro-UK party, um, and anathema, of course, uh, to the pro-hardline Brexit wing within the Tory party, and particularly the um, European research group um, that uh, is dancing to the tune of the likes of Boris Johnson still on this question. Boris Johnson just the other day said, warned Sunak uh, that he should not um, remove uh, the right of the UK unilaterally to override that 2019 trade and cooperation agreement that he signed uh, in good, in apparent then good faith uh, with the European Union. So he he wants uh, the hard Brexiteers in Northern Ireland and in the UK want ultimately the UK right to override um, the uh, agreement with the UK that was signed only a few years, with the EU that was signed only a few years ago. As one negotiator said, this is like having a loaded gun on the table while negotiating with Brussels. Um, so, you know, Brussels rightly doesn't like this. And uh, there are many in the UK who fear that this is just another part of the populist agenda seen as undermining Britain's reputation for abiding by international agreements that it has signed. So that's the fundamental problem. Uh, Sunak, uh, the pragmatist, says that, look, I can I can fix this. I can reach a deal. Let's de-escalate the rhetoric. I can reach a deal um, that will diminish the costs of this economic border, this customs border between Northern Ireland uh, and the rest of the UK. Uh, we will agree to what's called a, um, a green channel um, and a red channel. Uh, so a green channel would allow... Uh, goods to pass uh, from uh, the UK um, into Northern Ireland, part of the European single market that would then, for example, be exported onto um, the Republic of Ireland, part of the European Union. Um, so that would be, uh, you know, like you, you come into an airport, um, do you want to go through the green channel or the red channel? And if you're uh, in the red channel, um, you would have to declare um, that, uh, you know, and be subject to uh, customs inspection. Um, so, so this sort of pragmatic solution looks plausible. The problem for Rishi Sunak's government is that uh, all of last week, uh, I understand, they've been negotiating internally with their uh, partners, the Democratic Unionists uh, in Northern Ireland and uh, the, the Brexiteers within the Conservative Party over whether they can live with this kind of arrangement, this kind of modification of the Northern Ireland protocol. Um, and now, presumably, they're going back to Brussels for further negotiations because when they presumably we don't know but when they've gone to the DUP or the you know the conservatives uh, in London uh, they have said no we can't live with these aspects of it so go back and renegotiate with Brussels mm, gosh 
I just keep thinking, imagine what would happen if Brexit had never happened. <laughs> we would be having well, that conversation. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the dream, of course, of many Remainers. Um, yeah. You know, the interesting question, again, for the, for the real pragmatists, uh, such as the British Labour Party under Keir Starmer, you know, what's their position on this sort of thing? They have also said that look, they can make Brexit work much better by reducing the harshness of the, the Brexit uh, that was foisted on the UK by uh, Boris Johnson in particular uh, and was was not adequately spelled out in the referendum back in 16, uh, 2016. Um, and, uh, you know, so or whether, as some of the hardline Remainers uh, would wish, uh, that, you know, essentially the Labour Party and other supporters of uh, a closer relationship with Europe essentially say no to making Brexit work. Let's, you know, in effect, this is a bit like, um, you know, the Liberals, uh, the Liberals in interwar Europe who didn't want to, and the Communists in, in interwar Europe who didn't want to compromise with the other side because they feared that that would look like selling out, you know, their cause. Uh, so, so there's an ongoing debate about, you know, for those Brits who want a closer and more pragmatic relationship with Europe, how do they achieve one uh, without being seen, in a sense, to be siding with Brexit? Indeed. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting because I, I guess all of these issues will come to a head at the election and after, depending on who wins. Uh, so thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to chat with us today. I know there's a whole lot of other things that we haven't had time to get to, including a ton of strikes that are on at the moment oh, yeah. in the UK. It's kind of like everyone's striking, but we should all support them in solidarity. Uh, yeah, uh, today, I believe news. it's the junior doctors who are striking for 72 hours. So we'll see how the NHS goes with that. <laughs> 72 thing. hours. Yeah. That sounds like a long working week to me. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Andrew, and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. I've just been speaking with Professor Andrew Walter. He's a Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne, and we've just been talking UK politics, including Scottish politics and the resignation of First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it is my true delight and pleasure to welcome onto this show a writer whose writing I have long admired and appreciated, and that is Marina Benjamin. Marina is a writer. She's a senior editor for Eon Magazine, which many listening might be familiar with, being an online platform of brilliant writing. And she's also the author of A Little Give, The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women. And this book is the third book in a memoir trilogy that explores midlife. It is truly hard to categorise from my perspective, but it certainly covers a whole range of interconnected issues and ideas surrounding class, gender inequality, the way patriarchy fells both men and women, 
and also brings in Marina's background and her Iraqi Jewish heritage and family. So there's a lot to discover and to chat about today. And it's my true pleasure to welcome Marina onto the program for the first time. Hi there, Marina, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Amy. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I am a big fan of your writing. Interestingly, my introduction to your writing was through your book, Insomnia. When I was experiencing insomnia a while ago, I was listening to your audiobook of insomnia, and it actually provided a lot of not only comfort, but understanding of something that I was grappling with at the time. So I feel really kind of connected to your words now that we're speaking today. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. I'm really excited to speak about this new book, which is really fantastic. And it also, I guess the structure of it seems like essays that are interlinked, but also kind of some poetry there as well. And it's um, really, really delightful to read, but also thought provoking because it's something that I guess we deal with in our everyday lives as women. We think about these menial tasks and also caring responsibilities that we have But we don't often, I guess, get the time and space to reflect on it the way that you have done so beautifully for us. And I think that's what I got so much out of was to try and make meaning and understanding from my own kind of feelings towards cleaning and all of that uh, emotional and physical labor that's expected of women. I was so interested to see in the acknowledgements page that this book seemed to germinate from a conversation that you had with Keridwen Dovey, who is also a former guest on this show. What a brilliant woman she is. Could you tell us a little bit about how this book came into the world? Uh, yes, of course. I'm indebted to Keridwen, and I, and I say so in the introductions. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to Sydney Writers' Festival in 2019, so just before the pandemic, to talk about insomnia. And on one lunchtime between sessions, I had lunch with Keridwen, and she said, you know what, I'd really like to see you write on housework. And um, I, I sort of gulped, um, not really knowing what to say, because... I had long been interested in housework and I'd been searching, I think, for a long time about how I would approach it. I had secret files on my computer laptop, which I'd, (laughs) under the title Sex Work, um, (laughs) which was a sort of private joke, where I'd been exploring various aspects of housework and trying to find the right voice, really, to get into it. Because... I didn't want to write a kind of arm's length political approach to housework. There's a lot of writing like that. I've read a lot of it. It's very interesting, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I really wanted to kind of turn the subject inside out and really write from a kind of intensely present psychological point of view. And I wanted to write, I suppose, again, in the manner of the middle pause and insomnia from a first-person perspective, so kind of down in the trenches with it, really. And then from that material kind of grit, if you like, the reality of doing housework, of being in that kind of put-upon place of continually having to overextend yourself in the caring role that falls on so many women's shoulders, to then spin out from that into kind of wider thoughts about You know, what do you think about in fact when you're cleaning the kitchen floor? You know, what's on your mind when your hands down the toilet pan? It interested me and and it tied into a broader interest I think I have with dailiness with the idea of kind of 
writing about those things that are often beneath notice that people take for granted. Those are the things that interest me. And I think there's a poetry in writing about those things. So yes, I was looking to combine that kind of unlikely romanticized kind of quite poetic approach, quite internalized and psychological with the most mundane of activities, but also not to forget that political layer, that kind of, you know, is this what women's lives have come to? And why do we have such trouble not doing it? To what extent can we farm it out? Um, do we give this work to other women to do? And if we do, are we exploiting them? Um, do we not do it? Do we refuse to do it? Do we get our menfolk to do it? Do we, you know, it, it, it just, it's, it was the necessity, the, the obdurate presence of housework, the fact that it has to get done, that I thought was such an interesting thing to, to broach. Absolutely. You do feel like you're plunged into your world straight away as a reader because you're talking about the actual act of cleaning and it's very hard cleaning. It seems like there was a lot to do for your auntie when you were cleaning her kitchen and there was a lot of grime and, you, you know, you're on the ground and you're, it, it, you know, I can feel like I'm in your mind when you're on the ground, you know, doing this work and reflecting on it. And one of the most poignant parts of that scene in the book is when you talk about Elise coming over to you and saying, oh my God, a fairy has come and made magic. And the way that you say that essentially it was a clever thing to say, you say, she means that I have not abased myself by doing menial work, work that she understands to be beneath me and also beneath her since she never stoops to do it. The line between cleaner and carer being a defining demarcation. Instead, my work is fairy dust and glitter, a wand waved rather than a demeaning labour. I am a benevolent sprite. And I guess that really brought it home to me, the way that we talk about cleaning and the way that we try and, I don't know, make it okay or make the, the person who's done all of that work feel better for doing it. Could you expand a bit more on those reflections you had about the interactions you have with others around the cleaning work that you were doing and you know, the caring, especially of even your mother as well, you know, those in human interactions and the tensions that arise or can arise when you're the one putting in a lot of this work that, that you don't like, as you say, it's not something that you want to do. I should tell your listeners that the context of that scene that you describe, yes, I start right in the action. And I sort of, I suppose I learned that from, um, from drama, really, where, you know, there is often a a way of ambushing your readers by starting as late as possible into the action so there's no backstory you're just right in there in the the misery of cleaning and the context there really was that um I'd gone with my mother to to visit my aunt who was suffering from dementia and the reality of the situation dawned on me in that moment when I was standing in her kitchen I don't want to give too much away but it was clear that she wasn't able to look after herself or to care for her house and so I did it for her. I did that cleaning work that nobody else was doing. And I did it as a labor of love. And yet, when you're sort of knee deep in grime, and it was a very particularly filthy kitchen, I have to say, there is no getting around the abasement of it. You know, the smells that are offensive, the grime that gets onto you, the sweat, the grease, the, you know, it's just, it's not nice work. Nobody could could make it into something nice or pleasant. And so that interaction that you read out from with Elise 
takes on more interest because, of course, she's the woman that we hired to look after my aunt. And yet I was doing the menial work that she wasn't doing. It wasn't that I expected her to do it. That was not the role we hired her into. But for her to acknowledge that I was doing that work would be to acknowledge my abasement. And as the, as the person who was hired by us, that becomes a very difficult thing to acknowledge because it's a kind of unspoken interaction between women, you know, whose role is to do what, you know, traditionally, and I think I go on to say this in that chapter, you know, traditionally, uh, women of a certain class would hire others to do this demeaning work because they didn't want to do it themselves. And there I was doing it. So Elise's statement, her, her fairy, the fairies come and made magic, was a way of her circumventing having to acknowledge the fact that I had actually got down on my knees and got soiled and dirty doing this work. And what I like about that is, is it's a very blunt confrontation with its inescapability. You know, there is this material work that has to be done, and it is a problem for feminists about who does it and under what conditions. And I was interested in where that transactional dimension, if you like, of housework meets the emotional dimension which is the love and the duty of care that we want to extend to our intimates, to the people who raised us and who we raise, and those threads, those generational threads that connect women. And you mentioned at the end there the tensions that are inherent in that care. And I wanted really to bring that out, to, to really paint a realistic portrait of the unlikability, the abasement, the... Um, the difficulties of doing this care work. You want to be selfless, but it's not easy to erase your own life in order to inhabit this role of carer. Nobody comes off well in the essay that where I focus specifically on caring for my aging mother. She does not come off well, and I do not come off well. And I think that, again, is also inherent in the interaction. The more you need care, the more selfish you become, the more you give care, you know, the more resentful you become. And I really wanted to kind of um, explore the complexity of emotions in that situation. One particular page that got me in as well straight away when I was um, flicking through it at the start, when I first got it in the mail, there was a, a kind of poem that I read that I really thought narrowed in on some of these what are seemingly feminist and political issues, but as you are, you're drawing it into the personal and you say, I do not enjoy this work. I am not one of those women who buys the line that housework is a Zen activity, a doorway into contemplative absence, a means of zoning out. Whenever I get obsessive about it, which I do, I feel as if I am reverting to type, my mother's type, the type of woman valued by patriarchy. An economy of care is in play here, though not everyone is a player. It does not feature on the stock market or have any recognised public value, yet care can be bought and sold and traded to a third party. Who receives care? Who offers it? And at what price? These are vital questions for any woman. And it seemed to encapsulate so much of what this book is about. I wanted to reflect on some of these issues and the way that you have brought them out, because a lot of this is threaded through the book. We have a, 
a reference to Simone de Beauvoir's writing and the way that she views housework and cooking as well. And so you do reference some of the second wave feminists and philosophers and thinkers and the way that they have also grappled with the idea of feminism and quote unquote women's work. Could you talk to me about how you were thinking about those intellectual ideas, you know, those political and philosophical ideas and how they've come back to you in the personal? How did you, I guess, gather these inspiration sources and and other thinkers and bring them into your work? I mean, I think I said earlier that I didn't want to do a sort of straightforward feminist discussion. And in the end, perhaps some of the most complicated of the ideas are find expression in that poem that you read from or that verse section that you read from and I honestly couldn't find another way I could have written that in prose but it just it just didn't seem to have the directness that the verse did so I left it in there Um, so yes there's a certain amount of experiment with form in some of the essays I've put my more theoretical or philosophical considerations in in small columns down the middle of the page as a kind of kind of cultural excursus so without having to footnote or reference something to just as it were give you a little bit of an aside that kind of deepens the discussion into something that kind of perhaps leans on the reading that underpins the thinking behind this book so in the chapter on cleaning for example I'm very interested in in the kind of the ways in which uh, women's work has been rendered invisible and deliberately so. Um, it's been made invisible because it is not acknowledged as work. And we think of work as something you go and do and get paid for and get recognized for as a waged laborer. So in that sense, I was very interested in the political debates that came up in um, second wave feminism around the wages for housework issue, mm. which is let's make this thing that women do that spend time on that they don't get remunerated for. Let's make it a political issue because it takes their time and it drains their energy and it stops them from participating in the workforce and yet nobody else does it. And when women, ironically, when women, most women who work outside of the house, I mean, in terms of statistics, are working in those low-paid, unrecognised, low-status industries, often around domestic labour or its industrial equivalent cleaning, Mm. cooking, um, service industries, caring. That political debate obviously was informing me. You mentioned Simone de Beauvoir. I leave her really to the end of the book because there's a lot of philosophical meat on her reflections on housework and I wanted to engage with them in a very kind of serious way. The other thing, of course, that was in the back of my mind was the deluded ideas that I think quote-unquote homemakers have when it comes to housework which is just to flip the value rather than take issue with with patriarchy to flip the value the low the low value that is placed on housework into something kind of rather wonderful and say well we're domestic goddesses you know we we're magical whizzes around the house we have these wonderful skills that um, magical invisible skills that make us kind of domestic queens of the domestic sphere and Again, I understand where that's coming from politically. It doesn't sit comfortably personally with me. It's not a mantle I want to wear, but but it was something I was engaging with as I wrote. So yes, there was a kind of constellation of theoretical positions that have emerged through feminist debates over the past century that I was very aware of as I was writing. 
I also enjoyed when you inserted those cultural and pop cultural, in some cases, references like the Bewitched section. It was obviously really relatable because so many people have watched Bewitched, but seeing that subtext that you draw out of what is actually truly happening there and, you know, the fact that the husband is aware of this woman's powers, she's a witch, but she's meant to hide her powers and, you know, he gets the benefit of of what she does and also that she has to hide the fact that she doesn't do the housework, you know, that she just wiggles her nose and bam, it's all finished at the end of the day. That also, you know, that tension there from a period that we would think of as culturally long ago, it still feels very recent. Yes, I mean, in some ways, you know, it's um, it's a kind of time-warped anomaly bewitched because even at the time that it was broadcast, you know, second-wave feminism was was you know, up and rearing. And so it was an anachronism even in its own day. But I, I like to think that there was a kind of tongue-in-cheek message in it because, of course, what the, what the thing is saying is that it's um, bewitched. The message there seems to be that, you know, every woman is expected to execute housework magically. You know, here's what's really going on for all women. And I think, as I say in the, in, the, in the book, you know, the conceit of that, the way in which the marriage pact works between the witchy woman who, who magics the housework and the mortal man who is a bit of a doofus and who just has a kind of, you know, ordinary job that he, you know, there he goes out, leaves the house every day in his briefcase and with his briefcase and then comes back and smooches his wife. There's this, um, this idea that uh, for that marriage to work, her powers have to go unremarked. He cannot countenance a woman being more competent than him. And so the powers that she exerts have to be magicked away. I was thinking also about a topic that you just referenced a bit earlier when you were talking about women hiring help in the home, for example, to help maybe with cleaning or with caring. And, of course, you write about Carlotta, who you had employed to help clean your house and you know, talked of of what so many people do, which is to do a pre-clean before the cleaner comes and then you would be in her presence feeling like you needed to work. And then you were, I guess, yeah, exploring that impulse and the reason why you felt like you needed to work and also how the dynamic was shifting when you suddenly weren't working around Carlotta. And I just loved that and the way that you write about it. Some of the questions that you raise after that example are, does it not also make me part of the oppressive economy that underfunds feminized labor? Does it not leave me compromised? That is largely women alone who are forced to grapple with these questions is yet another aspect of patriarchy. Men don't even ask themselves these questions. They just hire people to clean for them and get on with their lives. I wondered if you could expand a little bit more on your thoughts there, especially around that section of the book. I think that every woman who hires somebody to clean their house cannot help but identify with the woman who's doing the cleaning. They are so aware that the job that she is doing would traditionally have been done by them and expected of them as part of the of being a homemaker, a home owner, the person who whose job it is to just do that homework. And I find it in my own life, and I think this is true of many of us, to be a highly complex and difficult relationship to govern you know there's that middle class guilt about well is the work that I do more valuable than the work that she's doing I certainly get paid more for what I do than she does for what she does so is should I be paying her more should I be 
trying to bolster other areas of her life to give her more options in life? Should I actually try and get her to disengage from, from this kind of work and, and help her into, into something else? And with Carlotta, all those things came into play. It was out of guilt that I actually started asking her to come less frequently because I found us both being present in the house to be to be a particularly difficult situation and I know many women actually who would rather be absent when somebody's cleaning their house because they can't confront that situation and I in fact did help her try and get other work which would be more rewarding for her <laughs> um, and you know then there were the, the dynamics around being in the same space together what should I be doing if she's cleaning should I be actually doing the higher status work what does that look like to her does that look like I'm kind of lording it over her which is what I didn't want to look like or should I be pretending that I'm a woman of leisure or not pretending but I I think I mentioned an instance where I was actually ill one day and this was something she found easier to deal with because then she was inhabiting the role of cleaner and carer because I couldn't do it not because I wouldn't do it it's a minefield and I wanted to try to write that fully aware of the politics of the situation, but kind of keeping the politics in the background, as it were. It also brings me to some of the other parts of the book, which are a little bit different to what we've just been talking about, but still are bringing in similar themes. And I've um, double underlined a section here, which says that I feel nothing but heartache now when I think of all the clever, angry, dissatisfied women who stalked the landscape of my youth weighed down with housework they seethed with resentment, which having no outlet, snapped back into spite. You could practically see its barbs shooting out of their eyes, the evil eyes whose nefarious glare my cultural forebears sought to elude by concealing their joys, lying about their successes, and keeping their dreams to themselves. That just hits you when you read it. I just really would love to hear more about your childhood and the cultural background you were coming from with your family, your parents, you talk about a lot in this book and, you know, those women that you've observed growing up and that that you didn't want to be like, that you were really trying very hard not to be like. Yes, I know the situation um, that I grew up in is is pretty conservative and fairly extreme compared to most people in kind of liberal Western countries. But actually, it suited me very well in a book like this, because I did literally grow up in a culture in which women were kind of in a quite Victorian way, expected to be the mistresses of their house, not to work outside the home, to defer to men, and so forth. And the passage that you read explores the kind of very deleterious consequences of that on the psyches of the women who had to live that compromise. And it was a compromise for them. And these were, as I say, clever, angry women. <laughs> and, and where did those emotions go? Well, they turned in on each other. I mean, that was the most, the tragedy of it is these women started policing each other with these sort of awful expectations about whose house was better than the others, who had more money, whose house was cleaner, whose children were prettier. I mean, it was just mindless, awful, trivial stuff that, that these trapped women the lives they were living and this is the culture in which my mother came from to her credit you know she only tried to impose it on me in a fairly minimal way (laughs) because I think her inner escapist fantasies were transferred onto me um and so she was very supportive 
of my, although also fearful of my efforts to escape that cultural background because she didn't understand what lay on the other side. She had never experienced the kind of freedom that working women experience or career women or professional women experience. And so, you know, there was an ignorance and a fear about that and it threatened her identity, of course, but nor did she want me to be among that, those group of repressed, depressed women who surrounded her. Yeah. And I wonder how your father felt as well, because you write about him in a way that's also really interesting. You know, you get to know him as this very flamboyant, charismatic, creative man. And as you say, in a way, he's pushing up against a patriarchy and standards of masculinity. And he experiences that in his own social group of quote unquote male friends and feeling like he has to engage in talk about politics and hang out with the other guys. What did he have as his expectations or vision for you and your life? And was that different to your mother? What I really liked about bringing my father in and the reason I spent so much time on him in this book is that patriarchy failed him as a man. And this is something also that we don't talk about, just in the way that we don't talk about the ardors of housework or the realities, the material realities of housework, we often don't talk about the way in which patriarchy fails men. So my mother was pinched in this uncomfortable position of kind of being a, a bright, talented woman with no opportunities. My father was pinched in an equally awkward position of being a flamboyant, creative, and very possibly gay man who was you know, trapped in this kind of expectation of being the man of the house. And he took every opportunity in private to not be that, to not play that role. Although it took me many, many years and obviously adulthood and lots of retrospective understanding to kind of recognize his psyche and what he was going through. Even as a child, I could see that he was very awkward in the company of men and they were very awkward around him. And so I wanted to highlight the costs of this uh, traditional gender dynamics for men as well as women. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was very useful. The other aspect of my father that, that comes into this book was the fact that he was a fashion designer. He was a couturier. He made beautiful things. And so he was actually had a more of an intrinsic engagement with ideas around femininity than my, than my mother did. And so ironically, a lot of my expectations about what it meant to be a woman in the world came from him. And so my particular, the reason I put so much about my particular family circumstances in there is they actually give me a theoretical lens with which to, to talk about housework and femininity and care work and gender roles and to do it in a narrative way where I can tell stories about what it was like to learn about these roles growing up in a Western country with a, with a more conservative background. And one of the lines in that section, which you've kind of referenced in a way, you say that patriarchy, it seems, could fell us both. That sense, as you've already just referenced, that both men and women are suffocated by patriarchy in so many different ways and their identities are changed or hidden or, you know, you're forced to shapeshift in order to fit into social expectations. But he certainly does come through as a really a wonderful character and someone who had excellent taste. <laughs> um, and that red dress he made you sounds amazing. Let's jump into some of the other sections, which are also you know, really interesting and obviously 
cooking is one element of this. You talk about feeding and that's a section in the book. And you referenced a man called Richard V. Reeves from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. I was interested in the way that he talks about relational equality and you draw out some of those issues through him. He says that those who are economically productive and successful often do not see a broken labour market, which after all continues to work for them. They see broken people making bad choices who are less worthy of respect. I guess it brings in some of these neoliberal, highly conservative views, the ways that those who might be disadvantaged are blamed for the situation. And you draw out some really interesting points. And one of the things that I really appreciated was the way that you said that it is not by caring that you create unhealthy dependencies, but by not caring and by disrespecting those who have less than you do. And you were just saying that, you know, I don't buy into this line of thinking that people are fundamentally selfish and that there's no society and only competing individuals, this very Hobbesian view of the world where everyone is kind of an adversary and you should just lift yourself up by your bootstraps. That whole section, you know, involves a soup kitchen and your reflections on those that you met through the soup kitchen. And I just wonder if you could tease out some of those issues that you've put there through Richard and his, I guess, theoretical insights, but how that's relating back to your personal memoir-esque insights, working at that soup kitchen and, and also just observing the people who were struggling around you in London. Interesting that you lit on that particular section in the book, because I would say it was the most, apart from engaging with de Beauvoir at the end, it's the most overtly political section of the book. And I think that what it represents for me to have that section there is that it represents the very faulty way in which governments, particularly uh, right-leaning governments, think about the care industry as a whole. They think it is about helping people who can't be helped, who can't help themselves, the kind of that there is a necessary kind of almost, um, you know, a given portion of people who are going to kind of fall off the economic train and who need picking up and that these people are beyond respect. These people are pitiable. And I'm taking issue with this model of thinking about about the care industry and what it means to care for people and what it means to be dependent, because we are all interdependent. And where I brought the soup kitchen in was about kind of making fundamental connections between people who have and don't have and what that relationship is actually about. It can be made to be a a meeting of equals rather than a meeting of givers and takers or dependents and providers. I wanted to strip down the political language and look at the kind of very human contact. And the fact that I was working in a soup kitchen during lockdown as well raised the stakes on that because we weren't supposed to meet we weren't supposed to mingle and yet that was what I was craving during lockdown and it was that kind of kind of very raw grainy relationship between one person and another what do we owe each other what can we give one another we are living in times of need and difficulty how do we relate how do the haves relate to the have-nots and and so yeah that's the most political section of the book really because it sets the idea of of giving in a broader political context and I think dignifies care and caring and the work that women do in 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 a context that's broader even than feminism. 
Yeah. So I felt, yeah, I mean, it's funny because in some ways, I, I think if I look at the book again, it's the chapter in a way that sort of, it sticks out a little bit because it goes beyond the personal, but I felt that I needed to make some kind of broader case for care and that, that I had to sort of, somewhere in the book, I had to lift it out of that kind of quite uh, domestic, although fraught, but still cozier, domestic, safer interior with which we're all familiar and make the bigger social case. Mm, mm. And so that's the chapter that does that. Well, it's interesting that that chapter flows into caring for, in your case, your parents. And the relationship between your mother and the way, as you referenced earlier, that it morphed really because of a lot of the things that you were giving up, that you were holding back from your mother because I guess you didn't want to... um, share that part of your aspirations, what you were, your hopes were uh, when you were doing a lot of work and, and supporting her. And she was obviously, as she was getting older, having less ability to be independent, needing more support. You talk about a slide into oblivion and you say that it happens by imperceptible degrees. That is what makes it so dangerous. What also, you know, was interesting to me is this idea where you say, I have so well disguised my own labour that even my mother, its chief beneficiary, cannot see it. I have rendered it wholly invisible. In one of the many exchanges in which I've tried to urge a new Julia on her, tried to tell her that I'm finding it all a bit much, she retorted, what do you even do? I can kind of see how galling it must be to have been in that situation, but then also no doubt you care deeply for your mother and so there must be a lot of mixed emotions there. And, you know, you go on to talk about a different tact that you tried later on and that was also really quite heartbreaking to read about. So, you know, could you talk to us a little bit more about that relationship between mother and daughter how you were feeling at the time. And obviously you still do have many aspirations, but you know, you weren't necessarily sharing all of those professional interests with your mum while you were showing her that kind of care that needed to be done. Yes, I suppose, again, there's always something in the background of the writing that's on the page. And in this case, I think what was in the background was this idea that I was this cultural idea that I wanted to push back against that caring was somehow natural, a duty of care, your parents raise you, you then look after them, that there's some lovely equitable balance that goes on. And that, you know, if we're privileged enough and um, lucky enough to have, you know, working lives that allow us um, a little bit of leeway, then, you know, what better thing can we do? What more virtuous thing can we do than look after our parents in this way? And I really wanted to push back against this kind of idea, partly because, like so many other of these unspoken cultural ideas, they put women in impossible positions. And because they're unspoken, because they're a kind of taken for granted received wisdom, women are battling in a way that is almost nonverbal or preverbal with these expectations that they should be delivering some kind of care for their elders, but actually their material situations are impossible. So I wanted to sort of talk about trying to care for my mother from the point of view of how impossible it is, what compromises you have to make, what impossible choices you're forced to do. Um, I mean, if you're a working woman and you're caring for an elderly parent, you know, 
you can't then have the privilege of going out and seeing your friends of an evening or, you know, you might have to choose between your children's needs and your parents' needs. An impossible choice. You know, you may have to forego things that, uh, like rest, <laughs> you know, that you <laughs> sorely need. And at the same time, I also wanted to enter the psyche of the person who becomes more and more dependent because that changes too. They're not the kind of sweet-natured beneficiary or recipient of of care it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way they're often very miserable about the independence that they're losing and the dependent state they're entering into you know they want their autonomy they're resentful they're bitter there are levels of obviously physical care where um you know privacy is intruded upon uh, unwanted intimacy enters into the frame these are very fraught difficult things to withstand and one of the ways in which um, I think you end up navigating this role, I think, as, as someone, as a provider of care, is that you have to efface yourself as you enter into the care relationship. You know, you have to understand that it's not about you. You can't bring your mm. needs and desires into that frame, that it has to be a kind of purely goal-directed activity that aims at the betterment of the other person's life even if they'll never thank you for it, even if they can't even see or recognise what it is that you're doing to help them. And I think that's often the situation that um, that carers find, family carers, I would say, paid carers, slightly different situation, more like the paid cleaner, but in a family situation, that's often the position you find yourself in. I really hope people read that particular chapter because I don't want to spoil the rest of it, but I really appreciate the way you've characterised it and told told us about your your thinking behind it. I wanted to touch on a chapter where you're addressing the universality of male and male thought and words relating to men. It did make me chuckle a bit, the opening part of this chapter where you were talking about scrolling through Twitter and um, an American writer, Melissa Phoebos, she was complaining about language and the way maleness hides inside it, and she vowed to drop the word seminal from her lexicon of praise because, quote, why should formative groundbreaking things evoke semen? And um, these, you know, replies that you detail on Twitter of women, you know, coming up with other words that could be used, which I love, and I wish that they would actually replace seminal. And we had clitoral, ovial, vulvate, luteal, lacteal, hysteral, gynerous. You also contributed bubistimo. I mean, <laughs> it really was a great way to enter this discussion. Could you tell us a bit about that chapter? And, you know, you do go on to talk about your first book and the way that, you know, you had entered a, a male way of thinking as well. And I just really appreciated the way that you grappled with this particular subject because it's something I did grapple with in my 20s a lot and the way that your writing is perceived and the wish that you will be taken seriously and the driving need to to write in a male way or in a male domain that will be received by maleness. I think by the time you get to that chapter in the book, you know, you've been so ensconced in the kind of, you know, high pressure, pressure fat that is kind of the <laughs> women's domestic work and the, the resentments and the, you know, the, the abasements that that entails, that, you know, you're looking for the escape valve. And in a way, that chapter was sort of saying, 
I think for a lot of women, that escape valve has always been to kind of jump, take a running leap into a male world (laughs) where all that (laughs) stuff simply doesn't weigh you down. So that chapter was really about the delusions of, uh, of jumping into that world because you're never accepted as a woman anyway. You're, no. always, you're always going to be slapped down or underpaid or, you know, not given the promotion or whatever. So it's a false escape. But I think why I started with the... I mean, it was quite a lighthearted way to start, but I was. I, it does make the very serious point that maleness does hide itself in our cultural uh, framework as the way things simply are, as the given. And you have to become very conscious of that in order to push back against it. So yes, I think that chapter was looking at how even language, even the language that we, we try and address our f- feminist issues in is 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 obscured and occluded with um, with cluttered, if you like, with maleness um, and how difficult mm. it is to find a way to speak about women's issues. Um, and so, yes, I mean, that, you know, that chapter is informed by Hélène Sissou and the idea of an écriture féminine and, you know, how is it that women should speak? And I'm also interested in, in Audrey Lord in that chapter who says that it's very interesting to identify and it's very important that women identify who we're speaking to and where we're speaking from because those are the parameters in which, which, which home and house um, the issues that are important to us. Um, rather than appealing to the kind of the patriarchal uh, law-giving framework structuring uh, language that surrounds us and which simply wants to slap it down (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so it was about trying to find and then raise up a different kind of way of speaking that is embedded if you like grounded in femaleness and then of course that too raises problems for feminism because what does it mean to be female? Um, how do we avoid a kind of essentialist femaleness? What are we grounding this female language in? So yeah, and those are the things that I was interested in exploring in that chapter. A topic or just an idea I wanted to conclude this whole conversation with because I felt like it gets to the crux of the sacrifices that women are making now and it's a sacrifice that you really confronted with a writer friend you have who you say has since become very famous and they told you that you lose a book for every child and you say that her delivery was coy for surely you cannot weigh volumes of printed paper against living bundles of flesh and blood but her meaning was sincere and you were talking about those impossible trade-offs. I think that is something that so many women would have grappled with listening right now it's something that I think about and I just wanted to conclude on that and your reflections on how you managed to I don't know reconcile yourself with the trade-offs that you make as a mother as a carer as a partner etc what you know how do you reflect on those trade-offs it's interesting that you use the word reconcile because I, I suppose in a way I was thinking you can't reconcile mm. them and that maybe our efforts, the efforts that we expend in trying to make a smooth narrative about the impossible choices or the contradictions in our lives are not helpful to us. And so one of the things that I'm arguing for is to accept the contradictions, embrace the friction. Our lives aren't 
they don't fit along a single narrative because we're women. <laughs> we are trying to fit into this world that hasn't been made for us. Um, and, you know, of course, women want to create and they want to achieve. But I suppose a lot of what I'm writing about in this book is the inescapability of the other side of our lives, the bits that we want to run away from, the, the grunt work, the housework, the stuff that other people rely on us for and the roles that we take on as carers are things that we we ignore at our peril because they erase aspects of our humanity and that if we can kind of do them and embrace the fiction and find some kind of self-acceptance, then that might be a better way forward than trying to live as political beings in the world. So live as humans first and then live as political beings. What an amazing finish to a great conversation. I've just been so fascinated by everything you've been saying, Marina, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this book. I loved every word of it. And Thank you, Amy. Yeah, I really appreciate the time that you've taken and the care you've taken to really consider so many different topics and bring it together in such a coherent and cohesive way. So thank you so much, Marina, and I do hope that people pick up this book, which is available now in Australia. It's called A Little Give, The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women, and it's out through Scribe Publications. Thank you so much, Marina Benjamin, for your time today. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome a guest onto the show who I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, but I can't wait to chat about his passion for Richard Strauss and all things 19th century German music and a whole lot more. We are going to be talking about a particular piece of music called an Alpine Symphony. That's the English title of it. In German, it kind of looks similar or sounds similar, but it's Ein Alpen Symphony. This particular piece is going to be showcased by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra once again on March the 2nd and March the 3rd at Hamer Hall. And I was fortunate enough to see it in 2016 and 2020 when they last played it. It truly is one of those ones you don't want to miss out on. You have to experience it at least once in your life. But I think once you go, you'll want to go again. So I hope that you avail yourself of the opportunity to hear it live. But we are going to play some tracks from it and also talk about it in the context of exploring the idea of music and its power and ability to evoke nature and other things like the sublime. So Without further ado, I welcome onto the program Dr. David Larkin, who is a senior lecturer in musicology at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Hi there, David, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Amy, and thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you. And you have actually not only written a conversation article about this very excellent piece of music, but you've also written a journal article from last year called What the Climber Saw, Strauss's Alpen Symphony and the Romantic Tradition of Nature Representation. So those who are so inclined, you should look it up. It's in 19th Century Music Review. It is actually an excellent piece, so I'm so glad that you shared it with me, David. But we are going to start out this conversation by not talking and actually listening to the music because I thought that's going to speak for itself and then we can start to refer to some parts that we've heard. So I'm going to play 
a combined part, so the first section and the second section, night and sunrise, I've combined them together. I do want to warn anyone who's driving at the moment that there's a very, very quiet and soft start to this piece and then there will be a very big kind of bang where it all explodes into beautiful pictures in your mind and in your ears. So I'm going to make sure I turn it down when it does the big bang but just be aware that that's going to happen. Just be mindful of that. But this is from Richard Strauss's Alpine Symphony. It's the first two parts, not movements, but sections, because this is a one-movement piece. I hope you enjoy this. This is a particularly interesting interpretation too, which we'll talk about after this. That was the first two sections of An Alpine Symphony by Richard <coughs> Strauss. We are talking to Dr. David Larkin from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. He is a musicologist, which sounds like a brilliant job. It also sounds like it spans a whole range of fields and is very interdisciplinary based on what I read from his journal article. David, could you talk us through what we just heard, the first two sections, which were called Night and Sunrise, and really overall what Richard Strauss was trying to do with what is called a tone poem? Excellent. So um, this piece is effectively um, about a 50 to 55 minute long single movement orchestral work, which is intended explicitly to depict aspects of nature. So what Strauss has done is he has created a scenario which basically describes a kind of dawn to dusk day in the mountains. And what we were experiencing at the very beginning is the nightfall. So you can hear the very sort of um, subdued sounds, a kind of mistiness, quietness. And then, of course, the crescendo and the sudden burst of sunlight, um, which re represents the, the dawn moment itself. Interestingly, it wasn't the first time in his tone poems that Strauss had represented this moment of sunrise. Perhaps even more famous to, to listeners will be the beginning of also Spracht Zarathustra, which is, of course, used at the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which again represents the sudden burst of light. So that's what Strauss was trying to do at these beginning sections. More generally, um, Strauss loved this programmatic idea, the idea that music had to have a poetic idea behind it, um, that it wasn't just music for its own sake, but that it should represent something. That drove him from the late 1880s up until this piece. And Alpine Symphony, just in terms of his career, comes as the final of the nine tone poems that he has written. It is the longest, and in some ways at the time, it was the most controversial. Yes, and when this was written and performed, it was in a certain time of political and social upheaval and tumult in the early 20th century, not only before, he was writing it before World War I, but also around World War I. Yeah, its first performance happened in 1915. So the war was very much ongoing at this point, and he finished its composition during the, um, the early months of the World War. But in fact, as you said, um, it, it began life as a very different project. It was called, supposed to be called an art artist tragedy. And he began that as early as, I think, 1899 or around 1900. And he dropped it and took it up again and left it in, in, um, in abeyance for quite some time. But it wasn't until 1911 that he really began work on it, I think, in a serious fashion. And that was occasioned by the death of his friendly rival, I think would be a good way of putting it, <laughs> Gustav Mahler. 
So at the death of Mahler, he writes a very famous entry in his little diary where he says, Mahler went to Christianity. I don't believe in Christianity. I'm going to call my Alpine symphony the Antichrist because it represents values that he saw as being antithetical to Christianity. Now, it's probably good marketing at the time that he didn't decide to call it the Antichrist. But nonetheless, um, it shows that it, it, it very much has a link to Nietzsche's work of this particular designation. So therefore, when you're thinking about the Alpine Symphony, we will, as I'm sure our discussion will dis demonstrate, it's more than just a nature piece, but it is mm. a nature piece first and foremost. Indeed, yeah. And I know that apparently, according to perhaps folklore, I'm not sure, that Strauss boasted around the time he was writing this symphony that he could, if necessary, describe a knife and fork in music. Uh, so confident was he of his ability to evoke certain things. It was really interesting to me to see in your piece, you actually wrote in one of your footnotes that there's a, an image of him standing in front of a mountain, an alpine mountain, and it seems like he did engage in mountain trips and hiking as a child. And I found a, an interesting quote from a reflection that he had about a trip that he took across a mountain when he was 14 years old in 1878. He wrote... Already on the way there, we were hit by a terrible storm. The next day, I portrayed the entire ordeal on the piano. Some people might say that that was part of the inspiration, but I also wonder what were some of the other parts of why he chose an alpine setting and also the, the insertion of a human into that story as well, because that is quite a difference between his work and, as you've pointed out in your work, those like Beethoven and his pastoral symphony, which is not really human-centred. Absolutely. So, yes, you're right. He had this childhood experience where he was caught in the storm. And the next day he says, yes, he improvised on the piano. Naturally, smarminess a la Wagner is what he said at the time, <laughs> because he wasn't a fan of Wagner, or at least he was only coming around to it. In the um, years before, probably about a decade before um, Alpine Symphony was, was completed, um, he had been at least living part of the year in southern Germany in the Bavarian Alps in a place called Garmisch-Partenkirchen. So he'd built himself a villa there, and there are plenty of photographs of him going for walks around these Alpine regions. So he really knew them from the inside, if you like. He, he really knew them as, as, a, as an experienced hiker. The reason I think that he would also have been attracted to mountains specifically, because there are plenty of beautiful scenes there, um, is the fact that mountains had a significance for Nietzsche, who was a, an important influence on Strauss. So Nietzsche saw the mountain as a place of enlightenment, and I, I mean that in a very much not religious sense, that the mountain was a place where you could um, discover yourself. So um, in Thus Spake Zarathustra, he has his um, titular character go up the mountain and effectively sort of found um, um, a, new, a new religion, you might almost call it, um, a religion which is preaching, be faithful to the earth. So there were plenty of reasons, both immediate in Strauss's environment and in his intellectual hinterground, that might have driven him to, to compose this complex, multifarious work. Yeah. And when we're also thinking about how this piece was received over time, I know that in more recent years it's become very popular and you can tell because the MSO is bringing it back every three or four years and I go every time, you know. But at the start and even later on, there seems to have been a mixed response because some people might not be happy or appreciative of the idea of music trying to so quote-unquote, literally evoke something. I don't think it's literal personally, but everyone has their own subjective view. And I wondered if you could 
Tell us a little bit about its critical reception, not only when Strauss premiered it, but also across time. Absolutely. So um, when it appeared, Strauss had been doing this for at least 25 years at this point. So he was well known for his programmatic works and he had been shocking and thrilling audiences through the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century. However, when Alpine Symphony came out, I think that the heyday of that programmatic orchestral composition had passed. There was a sense in which it was a little bit backward looking compared to what it had been, for example, in the 1890s. And other people were kind of doing more extreme things. There were some um, pretty choice remarks when it was performed in England. I dug one out for, for this program. Someone said, and he's talking about here, the guidebooks by a man called Baedeker. He says, when the German soul grappled with the cosmic profundities of portentous cowbells and erected a monument to Baedeker in rather flatulent sound. So there's a sense in which it might seem a bit overblown. It has one of the largest orchestras ever required for a piece up till that particular point. Like there's over 100 players are needed to play it. And after, like people wrote it off as just tone painting in the most literal sense of the word. And I agree with you, it's not just that. Then people, uh, critics, um, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, rediscovered or reappreciated how much Strauss had been in influenced by Nietzsche and how Strauss was far more than just the slightly Bavarian buffoon that he sometimes came across. And they reread the Alpine Symphony as Strauss engaging quite seriously with some Nietzschean ideas. And that's very definitely another layer to the um, to the tone poem. I have my own views as to um, another, I get a third reading that can be put forward, but we might get to that later. Well, let's jump into another section. This comes after the sections we've just heard. It's called Der Anstieg, and that's The Ascent. Could you give us just a little 30-second idea of what we should be listening for in this piece? Okay, so in this particular moment, up till now, um, we've heard effectively the sounds or a representation of nature. Here we turn to the human, to the protagonist, if you like, Strauss himself or just an unnamed protagonist. Um, and this character is launched off with a kind of heroic theme in the cellos and lower strings, uh, and then it works its way up. And this theme itself is related to a theme from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, from the fourth movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. There's a rather nice detail after it launches quite stridently, then there's a bit where it loses tempo. And in one of Strauss's sketchbooks, he said, this is where the climber set off too quickly and sort of is already getting a bit puffed. So rather <laughs> nice little details brought into this from a very experienced climber. Oh, I love that. OK, we're going to hear from De Anstieg, The Ascent. This is Richard Strauss and Alpine Symphony. And we were just listening to a fantastic section of an Alpine symphony, the third section, which is the ascent up the mountain by this hiker. It is by Richard Strauss. And that particular recording was from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Andrew Davis when he was conducting the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and it was released in 2018. The first conductor we heard earlier was Georg Salty with a much faster, more brisk pace and you certainly would be able to tell the difference between the two recordings in that particular piece because obviously the strides are so clear in the, the music. I wonder, David, could you explain to us the leitmotifs that are throughout that piece and how Strauss manages to interweave them and modify them in later sections to represent the human? 
Absolutely. So the uh, climber theme um, recurs many times throughout the piece. So effectively, as we go through different scenes, he will represent aspects of the scene. And then you will have effectively by various means, but including this theme, you'll have the climber's response to it. So for example, the very next thing that would follow on the excerpt that just finished there is called Entry into the Wood. So what we have is a much a sudden darkening of, of, of the, the sound, and it feels like it's a much scarier place. And then we hear little hints of the climber theme, but they are in the minor key at this particular point. So effectively implying that his spirit has been darkened. Another very famous moment much later in the piece is um, during the storm. So once the storm breaks, then of course the climber wants to descend. And Strauss very ingeniously takes the climber theme, which as you might have heard was an ascending theme for the most part, and turns it upside down. So again, this time it's the climber going downwards. So that, that by doing that, we constantly get a reference for the human within these particular nature scenes. He also uses one other theme that becomes quite important, particularly at the top. And that's a theme that he allegedly took from Bruch's Violin Concerto Number no. 1. And it's a very simple one. It goes... And then Strauss soups it up in, in, in very exciting ways. And apparently, again, according to his sketchbooks, this represents how beautiful, wie schön. So it is effectively a moment where the climber is particularly struck mm. by the beauty of the scene or the um, excitement that he's just experienced. It's funny because that's exactly what I saw in my mind's eye when I first listened to it and I had no idea of the background. So in that way, he must have done an amazing job that someone like me who didn't know about his Alpine Symphony before could have understood that. It's that kind of language that's so interesting, music, and how it can be so universal. Absolutely. Again, you know, we, 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 I spend a lot of time studying and trying to work out the finer details of what he was intended. But of course, that's A, not what people will always pick up, and B, maybe that doesn't always matter. But more importantly, he does use the emotional language of music very clearly. So mm -hmm. even if one doesn't know for sure what his intention was, one can definitely appreciate the overall ambience that he was trying to create. Yeah, the feeling. We'll get to that in just a minute when we'll play On the Summit, but I did want to play some very short clips which give us an idea of some of the natural elements that he's referencing, like the waterfall and also the mountain pasture. So we're going to jump into waterfall. I don't think I need to explain it, and I'm sure you probably don't either because I feel like this one's pretty obvious. So let's Excellent. just listen to it and come back. We just heard section six and seven at the waterfall and apparition. Now, as I said, it sounds pretty obvious. I could hear the waterfall there. I'm sure you could have, David. But what were we hearing there as well? So you have Strauss using his amazing skill and his amazing instrumental knowledge to create this analogy for flowing and falling water. In this, he's following on a, a rich tradition within Western art music. Um, in piano, you've got people like Liszt and Ravel. And then, of course, in orchestration, you've got someone like Respighi, who I think comes a little bit after Strauss. So that's very straightforward. But then what comes afterwards is that one of the more enigmatic section titles. It's called Erscheinung, which means apparition. So again, if you look at the sketchbooks, because he doesn't tell us this 
anywhere else officially. He even writes the word alpine fairy. So nobody really knows what that's about there. Maybe it's almost like as if you look at a waterfall, the iridescent colours gives mm. the climber this sense of maybe a little apparition appearing, um, the shadows perhaps in the, in the sunlight. Um, who can actually say? But nonetheless, the texture of the waterfall clearly continues while that melody is being played as well. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. That's beautiful. We'll jump into something on a very similar theme, which is just a little bit later. We'll skip in flowery meadows and head to on the mountain pasture, because this is the part where we hear the cowbells that you referenced earlier on. Is there anything we should know about this one before we jump into it? Um, this particular one is one of the most naturalistic, I would say, as well. So again, um, I've actually done some walking in the um, in the um, Bavarian Alps just to retrace the steps of my musical hero. And um, you can definitely hear the cowbells um, if, if you're anywhere near a herd there. So what you have very clearly at this point is naturalistic cow sounds and then a warm string response, which I think I'm right in interpreting as the climber sort of like his human perspective, and then we go back to the natural sounds themselves. Perfect. Let's hear on the mountain pasture, which is after Alm. We just heard there the section called on the mountain pasture. We did certainly hear cowbells, but we also heard some very funny, slightly discordant sounding, wavering noises. Could you tell us what that is and what instrument and also some of the other interesting and very different instruments Strauss is employing in Alpine Symphony? So in that section we just heard, we had clearly birdsong, which we didn't mention before. So that was some of the high woodwind, but perhaps more interesting indeed were those buzzing sounds. So that's a special effect that you can get on wind and brass instruments. It's called flutter tonguing. And again, it's not the first time Strauss has used this. He used it in one of his earlier works called Don Quixote. And in that piece, it represents the sheep bleating. So again, you can see how he's reusing that same effect for an alpine pasture. The other thing just to mention about the use of the cowbells this could be a tribute that Strauss is making to his deceased friend and rival, Mahler, because Mahler famously used cowbells, for example, in his Sixth Symphony. Now, beyond this particular section, of course, Strauss is using, as I said, an enormous orchestra. And the battery of percussion instruments that he used just has to be heard to be um, appreciated. So we have got um, a wind machine and a thunder machine. They're going to come in later when we listen to the storm. Um, you've got the glockenspiel, cymbals, large drum, small drum, triangle, cowbells, and tam-tam, in other words, the gong. So, as well as two players on the timpani and the celesta and an organ. So that's an aside from an enormous complement of strings, winds, and brass. And you can just appreciate what a huge variety of sonic effects are possible with all these forces. Mm, and something called a hecklephone. A hecklephone, yes. Yeah. So that's kind of like an alto oboe. I remember talking to one of the SSO players, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra players, and I think she said, oh my God, it's one of the most horrible things to play because <laughs> it's very hard to deal with its tuning and its problems there. So there may be some alternatives that people can come up with as well nowadays. Right. Well, I want to jump to something that is particularly epic, and you've already referenced it a bit earlier, this beautiful oboe solo, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's the 13th section, Alfdem Gipfel, on the summit, where presumably the hiker has reached the summit, has seen this beautiful view on the peak of the mountain looking out across the Alps. And it does feel like you're there with them taking in this beautiful scene and enveloped by this very warm, beautiful music. Could you tell us just a tiny bit about what we're going to hear? 
Sure. So he gets there after a bit of difficulty. So the previous sections have been things like called dangerous moments and on the glacier. So when he gets to the top, he's not, if you like, fully ready for an appreciative moment. I think he <laughs> needs to recover himself. And that's what I think the oboe passage represents. You know, you're just arriving there, you're resettling yourself, you're breathing again. And then gradually his eyes get drawn out to the scene that surrounds him. And then the how beautiful theme that I mentioned earlier is heard. And you also get um, a, a reference back to Also Sprach Zarathustra, the nature motif. So that's just a dum, bum, bum. That particular figure is heard several times as well. And then it moves into this magnificent passage around about four minutes or so in length of just sheer orchestral plenitude. You get gorgeous, rich, lyrical, romantic sounds. Given when it was premiered in 1915, this passage for me has always felt like, oh, this is the last gasp of the 19th century, this mm. monumental style that would be so unfashionable after the First World War was over. So it's a moment to be just savoured. And as I say, I think this represents the encounter of the, the climber with the sublime of the landscape from this elevated place. Excellent. Well, here we have Afdem Gipfel on the summit. Did you want to say anything else about what we've just been listening to? No, I think the um, the, the, the thunderstorm um, emerges after another couple of sections where we're not exactly certain what his purpose is. For example, he has a section called Vision. No explanation anywhere that I've found about what the vision is. And then another one where it has, a t again, a slightly um, puzzling title, Elegy. Mm. So there's a clear sadness to the music. Again, I'm not quite sure what he's sad about. Maybe, and this is where I explore in, in my article, in other words, if this climber is effectively living in a, in a, in a desacralized world, maybe it's a kind of a regret for what has been lost, this sense of the numinous, this sense of a transcendent other. And again, I know that Strauss very much didn't believe in, in the idea of the transcendent other, but it doesn't necessarily mean, just as Nietzsche predicted, that he was happy with it all the time, with that new perspective that he had. And should we just mention here what the sublime means? Right. Um, the sublime is one of those categories. It's a, a romantic category. And effectively, it is a mixture of, I suppose, fear, terror and pleasure. So the feeling if you're lying on your back, looking up at the sky and you see the stars and you're suddenly struck by the immensity of the sky and how small you are, that kind of vertiginous feeling you get that is part pleasure but also part terror, that would be an example of the sublime. Let's hear a little part of the thunder section, which is called Gewitter und Sturm, Abstieg, Thunder and Storm Descent. We won't get to hear all of it, but just a little bit here. David, we've just heard some wind and thunder machines, among many other things. How does Strauss finish this Alpine symphony? Well, he finishes back where he starts. So in the end, the last section is night returns. So we've we've gone through the whole day span and the whole day in the mountains. The climber we have to infer is safely down. And there's a, a section towards the, the second last section is called after echo, ausklang. And you get the organ coming in in a very sentimental and beautiful fashion. So you could imagine this as the climber's feelings of having been through this amazing sublime experience and reflecting back on it. That's at least how um, I, I choose to interpret that. An allusion, I think, to a potential religious topos at the very least. So it is. Um, uh, it comes to a satisfying but downplayed end. Um, we've had all the excitement, we've had the storm, we've had the sublime at the top of the mountain. At the end, it fades into night. 
Oh, I love it. Well, anyone in Melbourne or if you want to fly in for it can come down to Hamer Hall, Arts Centre Melbourne, March 2nd and 3rd, Thursday, Friday. You can experience this for yourself in all its glory by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. It's going to be epic as it always is. You've just been hearing from Dr. David Larkin, musicologist at Sydney Conservatorium. Thank you so much, David, for chatting with us about Richard Strauss's and Alpine Symphony. It's been so inspiring and exciting to hear your thoughts and giving us all the backstory about it. Thank you so much for giving us your expertise today. Thank you so much, Amy. Always happy to talk about Strauss. Oh, let's do it again. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.